Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. At the age of 14, my guest on the podcast today became very ill and developed symptoms of Crohn's disease. The diagnosis was missed for several weeks by a doctor who clearly didn't engage with Luke as a person. Since then, his experience has been somewhat different. And despite the fact that he's had a chronic illness, he remains extremely positive about the impact of that illness on his life and his contribution to healthcare has been quite extraordinary. My guest on the podcast today is Luke Eskom. Luke Eskom, you're very welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today. And I want to talk to you particularly in the light of chronic illness and in particular the illness that you've talked about, which is Crohn's. How did that come about for you? And how did you get involved with the Crohn's and Colitis Society? It's very nice to talk to you too. I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 14. And I I grew up in the UK as well. I I grew up in, uh, I say Wimbledon because people have heard of Wimbledon, but it was actually more like Kingston, New Malden, sort of very boring part of Wimbledon. And I had a very, I had a very Great childhood now looking back. You know, when you're when you're a kid, you just assume your childhood is normal. But my dad worked in the rock and roll business. And so I grew up going to see these incredible shows like Live Aid. And I'd go and see Queen or Bruce Springsteen or Prince on the weekend. And, you know, so it was a pretty extraordinary childhood. And then it all it all changed. I, I feel like I became a different person for quite a long while after I got sick. Uh, I had a difficult journey to diagnosis. I say that with the knowledge that most people have quite a difficult journey to diagnosis. I had a very bad first encounter with my GP. Um, I'd been sick for two or three weeks with diarrhea and with with terrible pain every time I sat down, which I realized was a perianal abscess. But I, I was so embarrassed to talk about my bottom being English that... I just was, I, I basically put all my mental energy into trying to convince myself that I didn't feel the pain and I didn't even want to tell my mum about it. And eventually when I was sort of willing to be vulnerable enough, I guess, to go and see my GP, and I'll give you one detail about my GP. When you drive into the clinic to see him, he has a black Porsche parked in the one car space with the vanity license plate DR1, number one doctor. And he examined me in a way that caused me a lot of pain wasn't listening to what I was saying and basically told mum that he thought I was putting on my symptoms to get out of school. And that really threw us because I thought I was quite sick and so did mum. And so we we just sort of went home and we didn't really know how to respond to that. And it was another week and a half, two weeks, I ended up going into Kingston Hospital via emergency because the abscess was about five weeks at this point and it was agony. I mean, I just couldn't, I couldn't function. And I, I spent the night in hospital and had it drained in the morning. And then I was in there for about two weeks having all kinds of tests. They didn't know what it was at that point. And eventually I was diagnosed with Crohn's. It wasn't, I mean, that that experience was traumatic and, and horrible, I guess. I mean, clearly it was. I, I, you know, I didn't really think about it at the time. I very much withdrew and went into denial. But what was worse was about a year afterwards, you know, as I say, I think I became a bit of a different person. It was a very bad time to be hit with an illness like that. I hadn't gone through puberty yet. And I just found myself becoming very depressed and cynical. I mean, I never used the word depressed, but I look back and go, oh, well, it's pretty obvious that I had depression. And I, I had a very lonely last couple of years of high school. I basically didn't have any friends, any social group. And I, I suppose the way I dealt with that eventually was just feeling, was feeling like I had to emigrate. 
and and so that's what I did uh, 21 years ago. I came I came to Sydney and I met a lovely Australian girl and got married and I'm still married. And and life here is is very beautiful. But um, that that wasn't the end of my Crohn's disease. It came back with a vengeance in my early 20s, and I spent a year year and a half housebound on a disability pension. I felt like I tried all of the medical options that were available and nothing was really working for me and eventually got back into some kind of life. And then just as I launched my first album as a singer-songwriter, I became a singer-songwriter really during my first bout of illness. I'd always been a guitarist. You know, I was very shy and I hid behind a mop of hair and I'd just play these blues guitar solos. Like the guitar was really my solace through my teens. It was my one friend and it was a it was you know it it was great therapy for me to be able to play the blues as it has been for for people over the centuries but then i you know i realized after being housebound for a year i couldn't really rely on having a band around me all the time if i wanted to go out and play a gig so i needed to i needed to be able to you know just play guitar and sing songs and and go out and be a solo performer and finally got around to launching my first album and then pretty much i mean the the night of the concert i could feel I, I felt that things weren't right. You know, there was something going wrong inside my bowel again, and it was a very familiar sinking feeling. And within a couple of months, I was housebound again for another year. But the experience of that, you know, I mean, you know, I talk about these things and it sounds awful and it sounds like, you know, this is the worst thing in the world. But the way my wife cared for me through that time, I felt like I, I truly understood the meaning of love for the first time in my life through the way that she just you know, it didn't matter how sick I was, or there was no blame, there was no no judgment, just complete acceptance of me and just complete love. And it's funny, because she'd, she'd actually been away to India for a couple of weeks, and she came back and found me so sick. And, and she clearly had been spiritually kind of enriched from that experience and brought back that that kind of loving vibe. And I I had a real spiritual awakening through that, through experiencing love like that from a person who was once a stranger to me that I, I, and I started reading some of the books she'd brought back from India and also the Tibetan book of living and dying. And I thought I was dying at that point, actually, I suppose I was preparing myself. But what I realized from reading that book was that so much of the anguish that I'd lived with ever since my diagnosis, I mean, so much of it, all of it was just self-imposed. I was, I was basically choosing to hold on to these feelings of guilt and shame and failure about you know, not achieving what I'd been expected to achieve in my life. And I realized that right then I could just let go of all of that. And I did. And I just sort of said to myself, I accept you. I love you. And it was like, uh, honestly, it was like when people describe that experience of like, you know, God came upon me in the shopping mall or something. It was like, it was like white light just cascaded through my body. And I felt uh, my ego was evaporated. And I, I you know, I, I had this this sensation of the, that I could sit out on my front stoop. And I was in a lot of pain and all of that. I mean, my, my daily reality was terrible, but I was in a state of complete bliss. I felt like my mind could go up into the sky and encircle the world, and I was one with all creation. And then I had to make a decision, like either just see that through to its logical conclusion and die with a smile on my face, or go back into the emergency room of hospital and submit myself to just, you know, terrible, terrible, traumatic events evolving needles and tubes and cameras and animals and all sorts of stuff. And of course, I did that. And because I did that, I'm still alive today and able to talk to you. But that was a very, that was a very uh, rapid way to burst my spiritual bubble. 
to go into the hospital system that sick. But those experiences that I had in there, again, you know, I suppose we're talking about trauma. I went through trauma and and great feelings of kind of violation of my personal space and my body and my, you know, everything. And it led to me creating a comedy show or sort of I falteringly found my way towards being on stage at the Melbourne Comedy Festival doing still a singer-songwriter show, but with some stand-up and with a kind of narrative. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I called the show Chronic without really understanding what it was. I I was following an impulse. uh, And what I realized was I really needed to talk about this. And the, the most therapeutic way seemed to be to talk about it through music and comedy to a room full of strangers and, and feel and hear laughter. I found the laughter to be incredibly healing and inspiring. And at one of those shows, it was the one where it was the show where I, I, I'd been, you know, I'd been to the Edinburgh Fringe, I'd been to a few different festivals. And it was so exhausting because I still wasn't well. And I just, I, uh, and when I was in Edinburgh, the place I was staying, the, my room got broken into. I had my passport stolen, my iPad, you know, and then I had to go out and do a show to two people in the middle of the day for no money. And so I just thought, look, this isn't for me. I'm going to give up. This is, I'm going to stop doing this. And of course, that's that's the show where the ABC comes and films it. And the head of Crohn's and Colitis Australia is in the crowd and hears me speaking about some of my hospital experiences and asks me if I'll go and speak at Parliament House to tell my story about what it's like to live with Crohn's disease. And and I, you know, I saw that as a as a great honor to go not only to tell my own story, but to actually speak on behalf of people living with an illness that certainly at that time very few people talk, talked about. I, I think it's a bit of a cliche to call Crohn's the disease no one talks about because if you go online Thousands, hundreds, you know, tens of thousands of people are talking about it every day online. But but back then, this was like 2011. You know, I felt like I was really, I, I could provide a lot of illumination into the the sort of suffering that that people with Crohn's go through on a daily basis. And I did that, and it it just led to me being asked to speak at other events. And I'd, soon I had this new career tangent as a keynote speaker, and and it went international a few years ago. I, I got flown over to. Chicago and then Miami and New York and London and Vienna and and I was doing basically like a 10 minute version of my comedy show in these very sort of high production type conferences but it really I mean it was also an artistic revelation I kind of realized that the the thing that I'd been trying to hide for so long because I I thought you know you can't be a rock star and have a bowel disease like that's not cool you know those things don't equate but I realized like just by going on stage and being honest, I, I found comedy and I found some of my best material and I, you know, was able to to win awards and, and have these incredible experiences. Uh, but but I, I find that that's true of anyone who has an embarrassing, potentially shameful chronic illness who fights back against that sort of self-imposed silence. Like when you when you start to speak and tell your story and be honest barriers fall away and your life transforms. I mean, I, I, I've never found that sort of not to be the case in, in other people I've met, however they've chosen to tell their story. And so I'm, yeah, I'm a very proud ambassador for Crohn's and Colitis Australia. I think they do great work. And the best thing they do and the best thing anyone can do, I think, who lives with a chronic illness is just find other people living with that illness to talk to because no one, like the first time you speak to someone else that lives with what you live with, you'll realize you're not alone. You're not doing it wrong. You're not failing. You're not 
putting it on, you just feel this enormous sense of validation and, and relief, I suppose, that the terrible time you're having is actually, that's, that's what it is. And that's oddly reassuring. That's a fantastic story, Luke, and I'm so pleased that it worked out like that for you. But for people who don't know what Crohn's is all about, tell us in a nutshell what this disease does to you and how it affects you. That's not so easy to do, actually. I found from, particularly from looking at online support groups for people with Crohn's, that every time I meet someone with Crohn's, I hear about a new horrible way that it affects your life. But I suppose the standard Crohn's, the starting point, is that it's a disease that affects your digestive system, often the large bowel, sometimes the small bowel, sometimes up to the mouth, and all the way down to the bottom end. And the symptoms, common symptoms might be painful, debilitating stomach cramps, going to the toilet 15 to 20 times a day, diarrhea, a sudden urgency where you just have to find a toilet within a minute and a half, otherwise disaster. And I suppose, you know, describing those symptoms, if you can imagine what it's like to be a young person living with that, and, and many of the people who are diagnosed are uh, teenagers or in their 20s, that's often when it first presents, it's completely kind of antithetical to the busy social life and, and, and kind of risk-taking way of living that you might expect from someone that age. So it, it can be very isolating because you might have friends that are happy to listen to you, but after a while, they get kind of bored of it because you're still sick and, and people don't understand that uh, always at that age. And I think there have been tremendous strides in the, in the medications that are available now. And I should say, like, no one knows exactly what causes Crohn's. There's no cure for it as such. The treatments are generally long-term, and everyone's illness is quite unique to them, is, is something I've found. It seems to be quite a bespoke disease. It sort of adapts itself to you, and it's incredibly resilient. You know, you might think you're shot of it, and then it comes back, and it comes back stronger, and what worked before doesn't work again. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, I, I've been through times where I've got up and taken 13 different pills every day. I've had abscesses drained under surgery, which is incredibly painful. You know, where they use the expression of pain in the ass, it's because that's the worst place to have a horrible, stabbing, burning kind of pain. Oh, terrible things. Fistulas as well. Like, I mean, it's, it's a, it can be a really agonizing, completely debilitating, isolating illness. But then on the other hand, it can be just okay enough that people live with it and they go and have they work full-time and their parents and they're in relationships and they live with something that saps their energy and causes them pain and distress and anxiety on a daily basis and i don't know really which is worse like to to have it be so bad that you just can't leave the house or to have it be not quite bad enough that you still have to go out and, and live life it's it's absolutely exhausting one good way of describing it is um is that it's sort of like being in an abusive relationship with a part of your own body. Uh, it's like having a, you know, you make excuses for it. You, you pretend that it's not as bad as it is. You go, look, it's all right. I can live with this. Or, or you know, in the worst cases, you say, I deserve this. You know, I, I shouldn't have eaten. G generally, as you can imagine, you have a very problematic relationship with food when you live with IBD because you feel like everything makes you feel bad. But it's also your fault because you ate it. And whenever you have a flare-up, I think it's a very natural thing to go back to the last pleasurable thing you ate and go, shouldn't have eaten that. That was it. It's my fault. So it's, it's mentally and physically a giant burden. It is a giant burden. You're right. 
And the people who are charged with supporting people who have this giant burden are the people who went into medicine to serve. DR1 was not doing a good job. How do we change that? What would be your advice to people who are caring for patients with Crohn's disease? Well, it's a very good question. I normally get asked that the other way. I, I get asked about what, what, what about people who have just been diagnosed? But I, I think the answer is, is the same in the sense that the way forward is for there to be a collaborative relationship between the patient and the healthcare team. You know, you need to work together. As a doctor, you need to understand this particular person because, as I say, I think everyone's IBD is a kind of bespokely fitted to them. And it's very important as a, as a physician that you're willing to accept the fact that in order to, you might not be able to help your patient with everything because IBD affects every aspect of life. So it's great if you can help with pain and if you can prescribe medications that get the illness under control. But at the same time, there's this whole mental, lifestyle, social aspect of IBD that I think for a long time, either doctors felt that's just not my business. You know, I'm here to to fight the disease and, you know, the patient's life is none of my business. Or they feel like, look, I'm not able to help in that regard, so I'm not going to bring that up. I think patients, especially at the beginning, need doctors to reach in and ask them about their lives and and also help patients see what what a way out actually looks like. Because for a lot of people, just not being in pain every day is enough. That's how it was for me. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky I had a specialist who wanted more for me than I wanted for myself. She, you know, asked me about what I wanted to do with my life. And, and one of the things that was hopefully on the right horizon was becoming a father. And, and she said, look, if, if you want to be a dad, you need to think about your long-term health. And this is what will happen if you don't. Uh, I mean, at this point, it was surgery was on the table, having an ileostomy. And it was something I'd never wanted to do. I never even wanted to hear about it. But she kept approaching that conversation and she found the right way to broach it with me. In fact, she was eight months pregnant at the time wearing this white maternity dress. And, and it's, it was unusual because she usually wore these very kind of drab pantsuits. She's wearing this flowing white maternity dress. She brings her entire team into the room with me. And somehow, I don't know if she planned this, she manages to stand in a shaft of sunlight that's coming in through the window so that she is glowing. And she says to me, Luke, I strongly believe you need to have this surgery if you want to be a dad and if you want to live a long life. Because I'd been just been thinking about, I'll be fine for the next six months. That was my kind of loop that I was in. And it, it affected me and helped me make this huge decision to have an ileostomy, which is what I did in, in 2012, just before becoming a dad. And I haven't had any symptoms or had to be on any medication since. I've been very fortunate. It's not a solution for everybody, but so far it has been enormously impactful for me. It's, it's liberated me from the illness. But, but it took 20 years for me to get to that point. And as a doctor, you really need to understand the individual you're dealing with. It's, it's so important. And they need to trust you. You need to build a connection and rapport because that, that enables you to get to that point where you can offer that, that suggestion or that piece of advice that will change that person's life. But you can't, you know, you have, to, you have to enter lovingly into that dance. You have to get to that point in collaboration and with empathy. That, that's what we need from you. Like we, we kind of assume that you know what you're doing 
in terms of looking at pictures of the insides of our colon and, and things like that. What we really need is that relationship. We need you to be a partner. And because if you're not, and this is this is what I found when I, I found like I don't feel that my doctor is a partner anymore, then you go off into this quite murky world of let's call it alternative health, where people pretend to be your friend and they make connections by selling, telling you things like your doctor is lying to you or you shouldn't take this medication, it's making you sicker or you know, you get involved in some conspiracy thinking, which I see now as just basically a symptom of the illness. I feel like it's a phase everyone goes through because it's very hard when science doesn't have an answer for you. You just go and look somewhere else. So, yeah, if you if you can build that trust and that connection, you can save that person a lot of anguish. So, so all of those things that might seem like soft skills or, you know, extras, that's the essence. Your book's called The Art of Doctoring, and I think uh, uh, that's a lovely phrase. You know, it is an art, and, uh, and each case is different. You're right. If we don't know our patients, we can't really help them because, as you know, not all medicines work in all situations. And you've got to walk that walk with the patient and say, okay, that didn't work, but I know what you're trying to achieve. Let's try something else. Look, you're also the champion for the Pain Management Association. How did that come about? That came about because Joyce, who who is the head of that organization, very actively sought me out, have followed me to a couple of rock and roll gigs and sort of convinced me that I was someone who could who could help and and to come and and speak to the pain support group in Mackay. And the big message that she's trying to get across is that pain itself is not treated as a chronic condition in itself. Pain is seen as just a symptom of of something else. But actually living with chronic pain is itself like an illness. It affects you exactly the same as living with any other chronic illness. In fact, I, I've been very lucky to live without pain for for quite a few years, and and you know waking up and like you know having problems with my back or my ribs, and being aware of how pain affects my state of mind, like it sucks all the joy out of the moment, and you make decisions differently, and your relationships are affected. Like it is, it is absolutely a chronic condition in itself to live with a uh, recurring pain, and so you know I was able to to speak to that and and uh, and connect with that group. Um, but I also, this was at a time where all of this was very new to me. And I was just, if anyone thought I could help with something, I would say, yes, tell me what you want me to do. So, so I'm, I'm sort of, I'm there to help whenever, whenever called upon, but I also don't want to spread myself too thin. I'm, I'm an ambassador for, for, you know, I'm, I'm sit on a number of consumer committees and I don't want to, I don't want to overcommit. But that's certainly the message that I think is very important is for is for the medical community and for social services as well to understand chronic pain as an illness in itself. Where to from here, Luke? Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? <laughs> that is a very good and difficult question. I, I start every year with no answer to that question. A lot of the time, I, I, I like it like that. I've, I've set up my life like that deliberately. When I see the government saying, "Oh, it's, it's shocking how how many people we have who are like underemployed or casually employed," I, I, I don't want a job. I'm happy to to create my own work, but I create my own work based on my inspiration. And when that happens, I follow it, and it leads me somewhere. It opens doors, and then it creates connections, and then people 
people tell me what they want me to do. So, I mean, you know, I, I, I was following an impulse when I, I did my comedy show, Chronic, and I didn't know where that would lead, but I followed the impulse because I trusted it. I trusted the inspiration and it's opened all these doors. And, and then I had a very similar experience, although mu with much more clarity in, in 2014, after becoming a dad, I created a kids band called The Vegetable Plot. And that was done with the intention that I wanted my music to connect me with uh, people that knew about food and health. And I wanted to play gigs during the day and not be in pubs at night and not be out late. I wanted to create a community through my work. So I guess that's what I'm always trying to do is that my, I kind of listen to my values and, and what I want. And that kind of comes through in my creative work. And then I follow that. So at the moment, I mean, the world is not what it was a year and a half ago. I, I, I reached a fantastic moment in my life towards the end of 2019 where I we bought our first house on Well Beach Road. You know, we live in paradise. Everything was going great. I had my my best year as a as a as a musician, as a as a as a touring artist, as a keynote speaker. Everything was fantastic. And then Australia was on fire for six months, and I don't feel like I really dealt with how much that affected me. And suddenly we were in a pandemic and my entire calendar was just wiped out. And already this year, I live in Avalon. So, um, <laughs> you know, we were getting ready to have Christmas when suddenly the the, the uh, premier is talking about Avalon Bolo on the news. It's like, Avalon Bolo, that's at the bottom of our street. So suddenly all my gigs in January were cancelled. So so I really don't know. I'm in a, I'm in a, there's a lot of uncertainty. And it, it keeps me up at night, but it also um, there's also a lot of opportunity and uncertainty, or a lot of potential. So I don't know. I definitely don't have a ten year plan. I I, I try to make a plan at the beginning of the day as to how I'm going to get to the night, um, and things happen. And I it's happened like that for the last ten years, and I trust it, and I still believe in myself. But I do miss having the evidence of like a cheering audience to tell me that I have something of value to offer. It's funny how a room full of strangers telling you you're great is good for your mental health. I've noticed that not having that has made me less certain of who I am. Luke Eskam, you are special. And this was a very special conversation. You have so much to offer, not only the people who have Crohn's, but any chronic illness. So much of what you say will resonate with our listeners. Thank you so much for your contribution and let's catch up again very soon. Thanks, I'd love that. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>